Welcome to episode 56 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Heiderscheidt from University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine, but I am without my normal co-host, Mountainland Physical Therapist Jeremy Stoker. He has a busy schedule and wasn't able to squeeze it in today. He's got a lot going on right now, uh, but we're eager to get him back for our next podcast. Uh, continue to check for updates on the 2021 Mountainland Running Summit at summit.mlrehab.com. Again, that's summit.mlrehab.com. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers with a range of expertise. Still working on final details, so keep checking back to the website and we'll get things up there posted as soon as we can. Um, as well, send any questions and feedback that you have to podcast at mlrehab.com. All right, let's get into the good stuff. So today we're going to talk about hamstring strain injuries, a little bit of a difference uh, tact or topic that we've taken in recent in recent uh, podcasts where we've spent a lot of our time more on, on distance running topics. Not too many hamstring injuries in cross-country runners, but we definitely have our share of hamstring injuries in sprinters and mid-distance people. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And to do that, well, one person clearly comes to mind in that regard. And that's, that's my colleague and friend, Dr. David Opar from Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. So Dr. Opar is the director of the Sports Performance Recovery Injury and New Technologies, or SPRINT, Research Center at Australian Catholic University. He has conducted extensive research into hamstring strain injuries with a particular focus on how best to identify individuals at risk of this injury and how rehabilitation practices can be improved. From his research, he has also co-invented the Nord Board, which is a field measure of eccentric hamstring strength. More recently, Dr. Opar has served and contributes to the NFL lower extremity soft tissue injury task force. Clearly an expert on the topic, and we're very happy that you have him joining us today. So welcome, David. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Brian. I think, I mean, I always thought of you as a professor, but you found your calling, I think, later in life as a podcast slash radio host. Yeah, I don't. Very crisp. I don't really see that happening. I appreciate that comment, but I really don't see that happening. No, you've blown me away. You've blown me away early. <laughs> so I, I, that is clearly the Australian sarcasm coming through. Nice. <laughs> I got it all. Got it all. <laughs> all right, bud. Let's get rolling. So you've been doing hamstring work for a while. I mean, that's been at least a decade that you've had some solid publications and a long, steady line of research. So give us a little bit of the background. I mean, how did, how did you navigate toward that as your, as your career work, at least just a yeah, portion of your yeah, career? Yeah, sure. Work? Yeah, I mean, so probably been working in the space for right close to 10 years now, which sort of kicked off with a, with a PhD um, at Queensland University of Technology. But just to um, precede that, you know, my background's in sport and exercise science. Uh, and believe it or not, so I had a, an older brother who who did sport and exercise science before me, and then he went on to do physiotherapy. Uh, and I was always of the mind that I was going to go on and do physiotherapy. Uh, so you know, we have a system here in Australia where you know you get a score for high school, I don't know, SATs, whatever it is in the US, we have something sort of similar here. Um, and I just missed out on physio, so I went and did exercise science. And a lot of people do that as the, the pathway then to physiotherapy. And then did um, the first year of exercise science, I thought, oh, I really enjoyed the content, really enjoyed the people who I was studying with. Um, there's a great social aspect to it as well. So I sort of stuck on and thought, I'll get to the end of the degree and then I'll move on over to physio. And got to the end of the degree, got accepted into a graduate entry master's, I think it was called at the time. Um, but yeah, you know, my heart really wasn't in it. I really loved the, the things that I'd learned, the knowledge that I gained in exercise and sports science. So um, progressed down, then, then a research trajectory there and 
um, did a, a year of you know, sort of a research apprenticeship, if you will. Um, so that was at RMIT University in Melbourne, where I did my undergrad and my, my honours degree. Um, had a year then of lecturing after that. Uh, and then subsequent to that, I moved up to, as I said, QUT, Queensland University of Technology in the sunny state of Queensland uh, and in Brisbane uh, and worked under Dr. Anthony Shield. Uh, and so Tony had taught me uh, at RMIT uh, and he moved up to QUT a couple of years um, before I sort of finished up and then uh, stayed in contact and, and had the, the fortune of moving up and, and working with Tony. And I followed him because he was just the, the most brilliant uh, educator and sort of inspiring educator uh, that you know, I'd ever sort of encountered in my undergrad studies. So moved up, did my PhD with him and Tony done a lot of work in the past on, on strength and power training and, and the implications on performance and you know, had a background in track and field. Um, but he sort of started to transition away to use those same sort of concepts, skills and, and knowledge, but to apply it to an injury uh, context. And, and that's how I started um, looking at the hamstring injuries, really motivated by that direction that, that Tony went. So, uh, yeah, that was, I think I moved up there for 2010. Um, and then, you know, just sort of reflecting, I think the first of our hamstring papers was published in Sports Medicine in 2012. So um, it's sort of, it, it's clipped by really, really quickly. It doesn't feel like that long ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So that's the sort of the, the long and short of it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great background, and obviously it speaks a lot for for Tony to have him say that you found him to be one of the most brilliant educators and instructors in the area. That's that's a lot. So, I've had I've had the opportunity to meet Tony on a few occasions, and he's he's fantastic. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I think the the experience. I mean, he's I think still runs a resistance training course in at QUT as part of their undergrad degree there, and you know he taught me that at RMIT. It's still the most uh, outstanding sort of single unit. Um, that I've ever done and not only just you know what I learned content wise but then how he delivered information how he encouraged people to be sort of lifelong learners so um yeah yeah couldn't speak more highly of it no that's awesome that's great so that still doesn't quite fill the gap though about hamstring injuries how did you how did that how did hamstring injuries then become the focus of it as I said I mean I, I was discussing with Tony topics for PhD um, yeah. And he'd he he noted the, the idea that there was a lot of stuff that sort of related to, um, let's say, performance broadly. You know, you might be trying to look to augment performance, whether it's via you know, resistance exercise, whether it might be nah, any aerobic capacity, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, but you know, things that related to you know muscle hypertrophy, altering mm -hmm. things like muscle architecture, neuromuscular inhibition. Um, and, and Tony did a lot of his PhD work on you know, voluntary activation of the quadriceps probably in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. It was a lot of those factors where it seemed like there was actually an opportunity to apply, you know, that probably isn't the domain of the sports medicine physician or the physiotherapist, but those areas of expertise and knowledge to an injury context. Um, and so it sort of started from there. And you know, I think the, the original idea uh, and sort of what sort of the preface of my PhD was to look at the impact of you know, repeat high-speed efforts on eccentric hamstring strength uh, and, and the specific impact that running has on, on fatigue during eccentric contractions or contractions when the muscle is lengthening. Uh, and then moving on into there was then, you know, there seems to be this issue of people who have a history of injury then being at greater risk of, of future injury. And, and at least lines of evidence to suggest that that might be at least partially mediated by an impact or deficits in how well the nervous system can drive a you know, previously injured muscle. Um, so you know, it, it really was, it's probably 
not necessarily a logical progression for where Tony's work started, but it gave it a real, um, a real, I don't know if practical elements the right term, but you know, something really topical and ha your hamstring injury is always a sort of a sexy area. Um, so it was, uh, you know, applying a lot of those skills. And then I sort of you know, came in off the back of that and um, picked up and, and run with various elements and, and worked as I said, with Tony through a PhD and then for a number of years afterwards as well. So it wasn't like I sat there watching sport, uh, watching people go down, grabbing the back of their thigh like they've been shot by a sniper thinking, which I'm really going to solve that problem. Uh, probably, you know, at that point now where um, you think about, you know, when you see a hamstring injury, what went wrong, you know, all those sort of things. But it was more about the intrigue of being able to apply your knowledge into a, a different context and the challenge associated with that as well. So yeah, I mean, that's probably the, the easiest way to describe how it sort of started in the area. Yeah. Well, I guess the advantage from a research standpoint is there are plenty of people who have these hamstring strain injuries, and that makes it a nice area to study, at least within certain populations, right? I mean, you could, there are some sports and some, like we talked about earlier with with cross country, you know, you're, you're not going to have any hamstring strain injuries in that group, but then you migrate toward soccer athletes. American football, Australian football, rugby, track and field, and all of a sudden it explodes. This becomes one of the, the most common injuries that you're dealing with. Um, but it, I guess if you put it in the perspective of the significance of it, it's, I think a lot of times there's this idea that muscle strain injuries kind of take care of themselves, right? If you just, if you just give them a little bit of time, give them a little rest, baby it for a little bit, you know, the pain goes away fairly quickly. You get your motion back pretty quickly. You get your perceived strength back pretty quickly and off you go. Uh, but the reality is that there's a lot more to it than that. And obviously that feeds into why, you know, what we see in terms of the significance of this problem, but maybe just for our listeners, can you, can you just describe a little bit about how big of an issue are we talking about and at what levels does this become a, a, a major issue? Yeah. I mean, so even just to start on that point of, you know, they sort of resolve themselves. We, we know that the predominant factor that, you know, leads to a future hamstring injury is having had one in the past. So clearly there's elements of either the natural course of recovery or, or rehabilitation practices that are sort of um, practice at large that, that, that don't address that issue. And, and I mean, that's probably a, a separate side of things. But if you talk about the size and scale of the problem um, and, and you talk about, and you don't see a lot of them in sort of distance running or cross country running. I mean, Australia's a sports mad country, right? Mm -hmm. um, but all, almost all the sports we play uh, or are good at have you know, exceedingly high rates of hamstring injuries. So you know, football codes in, in Australia are really big. You mentioned Australian rules football. We have two different rugby codes, rugby league and, and rugby union. Uh, and then we have you know, soccer. And you know, we're not huge in track and field, although we have a very small, um, you know, relative competitive, relatively competitive team, uh, at least at the national level. So, I mean, across those sports... I mean, if you think about non-contact injuries, you know, it is the predominant injury that occurs year on year. Mm -hmm. um, and even in you know, Australian rules football, even if you account for every injury type, it's the predominant injury uh, year on year. And we did um, some you know, very, very rudimentary work uh, a number of years ago, just trying to estimate the cost that that uh, relates to in the professional environment. And what it meant was essentially for you know, a squad of Australian rules football players, a team was paying every year one athlete, you know, in total, uh, you know, a salary who, who wasn't able to play just because of a hamstring injury. Oh, wow. um, and so, you know, the fact that it continues to be the most common injury in all these sports, and we don't necessarily see those 
incidence rates nudging downwards, maybe slightly. Uh, they're not necessarily exploding upwards. We're sort of managing to hold water at the moment. Um, but, you know, it's just a, an issue that we can't necessarily get on top of practically or in practice. And, and part of that reason is because, the, you know, the demands of sport and competition kind of continues to go up as well. So mm -hmm. the fact that we might be able to maintain the rates of injuries probably belies the fact that we're doing something right uh, because the demands athletes are exposed to is, is getting greater and greater, particularly their high-speed running demands and some of our team sport athletes. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, we speak to, um, you know, medical teams and high-performance teams and teams in Australia and, and internationally, and it's, it's always an injury that, that gives them grief. You know, wanting to understand how they can prevent it better, how they can identify risk better. And then obviously there's the rehabilitation component as well to try and minimize recurrent injuries. So it, you know, for me, it sits up there with, you know, hamstrings and ACLs as sort of in the, you know, the grand scheme of sports injuries that we look at. They're sort of the, you know, the gold stars, the granddaddies. And, um, yeah. you know, they've sort of they've been a problem for many years and, and, you know, I'm not naive to think that my contribution is necessarily going to change that, but um, we at least hope we can yeah, inform practice to some extent. Yeah, well, no, that's 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 exactly what you, what you kind of want to be able to do out of it because you're right. I mean, it's always challenging for one person to say that they've got the the golden ticket or the solution to the problem. That's that's yeah. vexed everybody for a long time. But at least if you can add another brick or two to the house that builds the solution, you know, yeah, that's that's ultimately the goal of the research program that people want to do. Yeah, and and like yeah, we we spend a lot of time and we'll speak about it a little bit later. You know, we've had sort of commercialization outcomes from from our research. Uh, but it's always funny when you hear either people or products claiming to have the answer to any of these problems that have been around for a long period of time. Like, it's just not true. Like, no one has the solution. Um, you're, and, we, and we're trying to, you're right, put the bricks together and we're trying to build a better understanding, a better foundation of knowledge and hopefully be able to help people apply that. Um, but, yeah, you sort of just laugh about people who sort of come in and try and sell the, the solution because it's just... It's a fallacy, but anyway, yeah, exactly. it keeps me. It gives me some some chuckles along the way. <laughs> I'm sure you've had plenty of those. Given how many, yeah. how many how many people make that claim. All right, so you 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 brought up the the Nordboard uh, in terms of one of the, one of the commercialized projects that you met you uh, you developed. So before we get into the actual Nordboard itself and where it is and 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 how how uh, big of an impact it's had in certainly in professional sports but collegiate sports and across the board. Uh, you know, I remember back to your first paper. Was it was it 2010? Was it 2012? What do you describe the validity uh, of reliability? I'm going to say 2013. Yeah. It was actually in um, Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. And I'm pretty sure you were the associate editor on uh, that paper. You are right. And I think we. <laughs> I probably gave it. you a hard time on it too. <laughs> no, you rejected it the first time around, actually, because we just had the reliability data, and and rightfully so. I think you mentioned. Um, in your initial comments, you were like, well, you know, this is reliability data, but, you know, we probably need to have an injury angle on this paper. So I think we then went back to the well and, and added the, the retrospectory injury component to it. And that's my recollection. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was you. And I remember getting that review back and I was like, this bastard. Um, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have said that when they've gotten a review back from me. <laughs> um, but no, I mean it was, but it was completely warranted because reliability papers are necessary, but they're boring. Um, and so, from a, a reader's perspective, and now for anyone who's listening, it's not necessarily scientifically inclined. We talk about reliability of a, of a device, basically just how 
repeatable is a measure if you were to take it you know, under the same conditions on the same person, you know, maybe a couple of days apart or, or a week apart. Um, so people always want to know when you have you know, a device or a test or a methodology, how reliable is it? You know, what is the margins here where if some, I saw something change, is it actually a true change or really is that just the noise in the test? Um, so you need to have that work done, but it's, it's pretty bland stuff. So uh, <laughs> I'm thankful for, for the comment in retrospect. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll I'll take it for that. Uh, we, we should probably move on because otherwise, I'm sure you're going to remember other bad memories that are associated. No, no, no. Uh, well, we might. Yeah, we'll, I'll I'll try to keep a note of them maybe for a later date. That's right. This this could become one of the shortest podcasts on record if that's the case. <laughs> no, no, no. So so it was it was a it was a really clever idea and device. I mean, obviously, the idea was that you needed to be able to test hamstring eccentric strength quickly and at a mass level and ideally out on the field, right? You're not going to bring them into a lab prior to going into practice. And if you could get daily measures or weekly measures, that'd be phenomenal. And, and the device you developed was, again, very cool. And obviously it's morphed and evolved into the its current product, but uh, very well designed, very well thought of. Um, so I'm curious, what sort of electronic engineering degrees did you develop along the way to to build that? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, um, so firstly, I mean, you are right. We, we'd had a lot of experience with teams sending us um, athletes to do testing on, on a device called Nice Kinetic Dynamometer. So one of these yeah. know, classical sort of lab pieces yeah. of equipment. It's heavy, looks cumbersome. Doesn't you don't re- If somebody walks into the lab, they have no idea what it is or what it does. Um, and, you know, to test an athlete might, might take you, you know, on both legs, 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, the, the genesis of the device is sort of, again, harks back to Tony and his sort of strength training background. Now he saw this exercise that was really popular in the, in the literature and that's the Nordic hamstring exercise. So it's a partner assisted um, uh, exercise that you know, basically targets the knee flexors, so the hamstrings uh, during an eccentric contraction. So when they're lengthening, um, and, and had shown you know, really promising uh, in some non-randomized studies, um, I think by the Norwegians originally, uh, maybe the Norwegians and the Icelandics, Icelandics, if that's what they're called, um, some really you know, positive findings from a preventative perspective, albeit in some non-randomized or in a non-randomized trial. Uh, and, and in one of those um, papers, yeah, my memory serves correct me, correctly, they sort of had you know, an image of, Actually, it was um, a group in Australia actually did some work looking at the Nordic and the, the damage that it inferred to the hamstrings because there's an eccentric contraction and anyone who's done you know, unaccustomed exercise know that you go back to the gym for a while, you get sore and that's uncomfortable for three or four days and that phenomena of muscle damage is something that's studied quite intently um, in the literature and, and in scientific circles. Um, but there was a group in Australia, I think led by David Morgan, who from memory was an engineer, um, and they did some work about exposing people to a, a silly volume of, um, of Nordics, you know, probably like uh, you know, six by 10 or something like that. Uh, and then looked at the shift in, in a yeah. talk joint angle relationship. Yeah. Um, and in one of those papers, they had, you know, instead of doing a partner assisted element there, they had um, just a, an individual strapped down into a, a device just to fixate or secure the ankles. Um, so I think that was the twig for, for Tony. He was like, there's an exercise that works but he hated the fact that he couldn't quantify 
his performance on it because he would go to the gym and he would bench <laughs> and he would squat and he would do a whole host of other things. But the fact that he couldn't quantify his performance and see if he was improving, you know, I think he used to tell the story of it. He couldn't write it down, you know, in his log or his book or something like that. It sort of, it, it didn't happen or it didn't <laughs> exist. Um, so that was sort of the, the, the genesis of the idea. Um, and, you know, I'd sort of recently gotten there as, PhD student and he'd received some funding, small amount of funding internally from, from QUT to, to develop the initial prototype. Um, and so the, the tech is then really, really simple. Right? It's a couple of load cells um, that are you know, akin to bathroom scales um, that sit in series with a, a couple of um, ankle braces. Um, I think we had uh, the original prototype had some old gravity boots of I think uh, uh, Tony's partner at the time, and they, you know, our tech officer basically sort of carved those up and um, set them on top, and they had a, a sort of ball pivot, so we could have sort of some um, range of motion or some degrees of freedom from those ankle um, braces to rotate, uh, and then you know wide load cells that fed into a data acquisition device that we just had as as part of the lab, and you know as soon as you as soon as you saw the traces, it was sort of like oh, that's a really sort of clean signal. It's a really neat sort of test. That's cool. Uh, and then so from there, we sort of, you know, embarked on the, the much vaunted reliability work um, <laughs> and then everything to sort of flow on from there. So, you know, I was, I think from my perspective, it was really a lot of right place, right time. Um, you know, it's something that sort of Tony had identified the exercise as sort of, you know, annoyed that he couldn't measure it. Uh, and then so he sort of set about a strategy to try and work out what we could do to, to measure it. And again, the, the genesis of idea is, or the, of the idea is, is really Tony's and I was there to be able to support, you know, it's sort of development sort of on the ground in the lab as we got it going. That's very cool. And certainly in the US, I mean, it's hard to find a uh, institution that is involved in football or basketball or baseball that doesn't have one of those on site or yeah. in, in many factors, in many times, you know, two, three, four, even eight <laughs> of yeah. those boards on site to make their measurements. So it's just, that's got to be kind of nutty to have one of your devices that you had basically developed as a as part of your thesis program just explode and become this. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, right? You never, I mean, you I mean, so the first things first, so the, the device went into sort of be spun out into a commercial entity. So just as the disclosures, I'm a, a shareholder, a minor shareholder in the company. I wish I was a major shareholder, uh, <laughs> but a minor shareholder in a company called Valve Performance. Um, and I, t- Tony and I are co-inventors on a patent that was followed by QUT as well. And so, um, you know, I had a, a few little involvements with Valve here and there. Um, you know, as chair of their research committee. Um, and you know, I have now a brother who works there, a brother-in-law who works there. And I think my brother's a shareholder now as well. Um, but yeah, from the perspective of what it really opened my eyes to was a couple of things, how important it is to try and develop solutions that actually address a, a problem in practice. Because if it, if it wasn't addressing a problem in practice, then you wouldn't have that, that uptake. You know, you, you might have something that, that might look fancy or look cool or, um, you know, someone could sort of spin a story about why somebody should have it, but that'll only get you so far. If you actually have something that, that meets a genuine need, that, that's, that's so critically important and that sort of shaped some of our work, you know, subsequent to, to the Nord board. Um, yeah, and, and just little things like, you know, you never imagine that you'd be having a, a, you know, a patent filed, you know, on your behalf or for something that you've been involved in. Um, and then to see then the uptake of people and, you know, you, 
I tell people you've invented something or a co-inventor of something and people expect it to be probably really intricate. You talk about you know, engineering, but I have mm-hmm. no engineering expertise whatsoever. <laughs> it's, yeah, and if any, my, my wife was here, my skills around the house are limited also. So I can't really do a lot with my hands. Um, so it was you know, just the, a really simple idea, but you know, address something that, that people needed and wanted. So, yeah, I mean, I, I reflect on it every so often um, that it's just a really cool um, series of events. And, you know, you could have a really, really long career and, you know, never have something, you have an outstanding academic career, never have something in that other side of things that might have, you know, a translation or a commercial element. So to have had something like that really early on in my career, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had yeah. that. Um, but But also I think, you know, got to take that that benefit and try and make sure that it improves the the science that we do as well so yeah no very that's so cool so from from the science perspective you obviously have done uh you've been very prolific in your publications you've had a lot of phenomenal graduate students come through your your lab and have now spun off into their own work their own independent lines you guys have have you know really from a to the hamstring body of literature have, have been one of the primary drivers of the research in the last decade so given all of that if we put all that in context and you had to identify what you think uh, or what you've shown, not what you think, but what you've shown to be kind of your, the primary risk factors that we need to be thinking about. Where would you say, or what have you found at this point that we need to be putting a lot of our focus on? Yeah. I mean, so that, that's a good question. Um, the, the, there's the obvious ones that most people know. And as you get older, you start to break down more easily. And, and that's true. Even in, we talk about, old in athletic populations might be over 25, which is <laughs> offensive for people right. like us to think about. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's an obvious one. You can't change that. Yeah. Um, right. You can't change getting older, but there might be elements of the um, the aging process or what comes as being an aging athlete that you might be able to offset, but that's probably a, a larger and separate conversation. Uh, and then, as I mentioned before, having had a history of injury, uh, and that probably then, you know, leads into understanding what are the factors that might have caused the initial injury, but then also really nailing elements of, of rehabilitation as well. And we maybe can talk on that um, perhaps a touch towards the end, but um, the, the funny thing about hamstring injury risk factors is there. It's like a sort of a boat that's got lots of holes in it. And you feel like you start to get, you know, a couple of fingers to plug up a few of those holes and then something else springs out the other side. <laughs> um, so th- this might, might be super helpful, but at least this will give you a bit of an evolution of thought, right? So we've started off um, with some of our prospective cohort work. So looking at risk factors for hamstring injury, what are the factors that increase somebody's risk of sustaining a future injury? And, and, and we started with the, the, the Nordic side of things, right? So we had a look at... Uh, Australian football originally, I think then rugby union uh, in Australia and then soccer in Australia. Um, And what we found was mostly positive, although some mixed findings in that. Um, And we're talking about starting that data collection probably in, I'm going to say 2011 or 2012. And then, you know, the the couple of years after that. What we found originally in Australian football was that compared to what we know now in terms of how strong eccentrically athletes should be, that at that point in time, they they were really weak. Um, so, you know, we, we measured them to be, you know, in the, the mid to low 200s in terms of, in terms of mutants per leg. Um, and, and we're looking at, yeah, individuals really needing to be in the four, 450 plus range these days to be sort of 
you know, on the average, yeah. um, particularly in some of those bigger strength and power sports. So, uh, you know, we started off with that work and showed an association with being weaker and an increased risk of injury. We didn't quite see that in some stronger cohorts like the rugby union cohort, but there was some stuff that sort of came out about imbalance. And then again, we did soccer, which is, you know, again, not really a, a strength trained sport or a heavily strength trained sport. Um, and, you know, found there were some associations there. So I've been sort of thinking about this a little bit recently. It was around that time where there was also, um, you know, really large randomized control trial from um, the Danes. So Christian Thorberg, Per Holmick, uh, Jesper Peterson, I think it was published in 2011, uh, might've been late 2011, um, you know, about the, the preventative effects of implementing the Nordic hamstring exercise. And really what that means is that if you train individuals with an eccentric strength training exercise for the hamstrings, their risk of, of hamstring injury is lower. Um, and, you know, the Nordic was the vehicle that was used because it's really easy to apply in the field. I don't think that understanding uh, had yet sort of permeated its way through into practice yet. I think people yeah. probably had an inkling that eccentric exercise was important, but probably not necessarily the magnitude of it. This is long-winded answer to your question, but I'm getting somewhere. Um, but, but I think what we measured originally as a risk factor yeah. uh, was really just underlying weakness and an underlying lack of exposure to eccentric exercise. We've done sort of subsequent work to that where we've tried to then collect fresh data and predict future injury, you know, building sort of prediction models based on the data that we have. And, and a measure of eccentric strength is... Yeah, you know, just about as good as flipping a coin mm -hmm. uh, in terms of who gets injured and who doesn't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I was going to say, you know, what are the things that we know that are most likely associated with injury outside of age and previous injury, there's going to be pockets of factors that pop up. Mm -hmm. I use that strength um, line of work as an example, because if we'd stopped after two or three studies, we're like, well, this is a pretty significant factor. Now, as we get more and more work done, more and more replication work, what you start to see is that that measure as a factor, I think it's it's places to identify those who are really weak. There may be some elements in being able to monitor people's responses to interventions and, and potentially some rehab applications as well. Um, but it, it's diminished as a factor in my mind over time as we've got more evidence uh, at hand. So I'm always then cautious to talk about some of the other things that we've looked at or seen where we have not that same breadth of evidence, um, but I'll do it. I'll do it anyway. Um, but, the, but the strength side of things, just to close that loop out, what I think is from some of the work we've done around adaptation of, of the hamstrings from a strength perspective and from a structure perspective, I'm going to speak about architecture in a moment. What we've seen is that exposing an individual to eccentric exercise more likely than not is a good thing for reducing your risk of hamstring injury. Now that could come in many forms. You know, so that could be the Nordic, you know, it could be a conventional lift that has an eccentric component to it at long length. Um, it could be, you know, a hip extension or a hip hinge type exercise where you overload the eccentric portion. Um, it could be, you know, continual repeat exposures to max velocity or high-speed running. But I think the exposure to eccentric, and eccentric stimulus is important. And when we've looked at some of our um, strength interventions, strength training interventions, and the studies that we've done in the lab, what we've found is that you might be able to cause adaptations. Now, what those adaptations are, maybe at the structural level, we're still not completely sure, but we might be able to cause some changes in architectural characteristics in a relatively short period of time. But if we remove a strength training stimulus or an eccentric stimulus, 
we actually can lose those benefits really quickly as well. So this is not necessarily something that we've studied, but this is knitting together the lines of evidence that we've seen that if you miss or are inconsistent in applying an eccentric strength training stimulus to an athletic population, that's probably an indication that you're starting to get in a pretty quick period of time. We talk maybe a week or two, you know, potential detraining effects that might have a deleterious impact on your structural characteristics that might then lead you to a greater risk of injury. Um, and we see, you know, these circumstances pop up um, a lot, uh, you know, in, in sport for various reasons. So particularly during you know, competitive seasons where, you know, a, a fixturing schedule gets heavy or, you know, players get banged up on the weekend when they play and then they're downloading just to get up for the next game, they recover and play again. Uh, you know, they might go two or three weeks without getting a, a, an exposure to eccentric exercise. It starts to become a, a really slippery slope. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it, it's less common now, uh, but seeing people who used to be fearful of inducing damage, you know, eccentric exercise, if you're not used to it, right. it's going to make you sore, right? right? So people used to be scared of that and they used to cycle on and off and on and off. And, and that's probably the worst thing that you can do. Um, and so I think there's some really nice examples, albeit, albeit anecdotally, of you know, teams here in Australia where they're like, well, we know we're going to get guys sore early in pre-season, but we know that's going to hold us in good stead for the remainder of the season. And, and the same token, they might push guys a little harder in pre-season. They might get a few more injuries in pre-season, but they know they're probably going to be more robust in season. Anyway, so that's a, a long-winded one to say, I, you know, strength was probably important in some capacity, but I'm not necessarily sure it's the measurement, but, you know. Uh, and we need lots of evidence and replication of these studies to actually understand what the true effect is. And we're probably getting closer to knowing what that means from a strength perspective. Last one I can touch on, which is some great work from uh, Ryan Timmons. You mentioned some of our, our great PhD students that have come through here and now running their own ship. But Ryan did some fantastic work using two-dimensional ultrasound looking at biceps femoris architecture. Um, so if we, this is the internal structure of the muscle. So how big it is, the orientation of the, the fibers, how they insert into, you know, a tendon or an aponeurosis, which is an extension of tendon into the muscle. Uh, and, and what Ryan found really neatly, uh, uh, I think it's the only sort of risk factor study that's been done. We've got a, a replication study that's under review at the moment, but he found in soccer players that having short fascicles or think of them as short fibers in your muscle, in one of your hamstring muscles, biceps femoris, increased your risk of, of future injury. Um, and you know, the, the follow-up work that we've got under review at the moment sort of confirms that. Uh, although the effect is probably not as large, um, but we see the same sort of thing in Australian um, footballers as well. But I think that the incredible thing that um, from an architecture perspective that I've seen is how consistently previously injured athletes, and we're talking about high-level athletes, um, even once they've returned to play and returned to competition, still have a deficit in that, that architectural characteristic. So they still have shorter fascicles in their bad leg compared to their good leg, leg you know, months and sometimes even years after injury. Um, so of all the data that, that comes across my desk and the stuff that we apply in the field, those architectural parameters and, and in particular mm -hmm. shorter biceps femoris fascicles has been the, the thing that has stood up most robustly. Now, do we need more papers like we do with the hammies for sure? Um, uh, sorry, with the strength side of things, we certainly do. Um, but you know, if I'm trying to plot the course of what I think, you know, the, the underlying, underlying physiology and the hypothesis might be and what probably stands up better, I, I think those structural adaptations are probably 
uh, fairly important, all those structural characteristics. Yeah, yeah, which is great. I mean, because then you're really, again, you're, you're going back to the what you know as being a potential a contributor to the solution, which is, uh, you know, your eccentric exercise. It has that that protective or prevention effect when done the right way and, and implemented the correct way. But whether it's the strength gain, whether it's the structural adaptations, that's that's what you're coming to solve at this point. And, and that's, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, there, there's probably other underlying mechanisms that we, we don't yet know. And certainly we probably can't measure that well. You know, there's, <laughs> there's been a, a recent paper that's looked at, it's a preprint at the moment. Um, I think it's up at the University of Queensland. So Glenn Lichwark and Scott Delp were involved, um, looking at um, you know a three-week Nordic intervention and the effect that that had on fascicle length, but actually then the number of sarcomeres in series. So the the smallest sort of structural unit that we have within our muscle <laughs> that basically is you know, strung together to build up fibers and fascicles. Um, you know they're showing that whilst you get sarcomeres stretch in that early phase you don't necessarily get the addition of sarcomeres in series and to me that's fascinating work because it's just now another layer of trying to understand what that the, me the mechanistic underpinning is uh, and there's, there's, there's a whole host of factors as i say that we probably don't even know yet but yeah the delivery of the exercise but what actually drives its mechanistic benefit that's fascinating to me i wish we could do more of that work mm -hmm. uh, but I, I sort of hope that there's others out there who are who are chipping away in that space as well Oh yeah, because like in, like you said, it's not it's not just the mechanism for the sake of understanding it, you know, and then saying, okay, good, now we understand what works, even though we already knew it worked. Um, and again, how how effective it is, we're not suge suggesting it's the it's the panacea at all to you know the hamstring injuries. It's it's it works well in, at certain times and in certain groups and in certain populations. Um, but the, when you do understand the why, the mechanism. And that feeds back into how you deliver and how you dose and how you prescribe your 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 solution and which is huge because as you know you know getting people to do and incorporate those the nordics or other sorts of of uh, eccentrics into training the, the, there's not always good adherence or compliance or follow-through as to how it's implemented um so they're always looking for to do less to get that same yeah. benefit so yeah 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 and I think, I mean, we were at a college team somewhere uh, in the US. I can't remember. Like, I know some University of Wisconsin, of course, a prestigious um, footballing institution, <laughs> but it wasn't there. Um, but I remember talking to one of their um, sports science and SNC staff and, and talking about the, the architectural adaptation work that we'd done, you know, following, you know, exposures to eccentric exercise. And they were sort of talking about how that was the, you know, help them with the missing link of their, you know, the sort of theoretical underpinning of how they would help to prescribe some of their exercises. And yeah, you know, I, I, as I say, as you, it's not the be all and end all, but having some of that information that helps link together change of thought, because the, the criticisms yeah. of the Nordic are, are well known and, and largely some of them are pretty valid as well. You know, it doesn't look anything like running, it's bilateral, it's slow and all those sort of things. Uh, and I don't think anyone's suggested that it's a subsequent for running athletes fast. Yeah. Um, it's not like you just do Nordics and then you'll be fine. Yeah, okay. um, but, but, you know, to understand then that there's a line there of expose, adapt, and then potential framework for how that might then help you mitigate risk of injury um, yeah, is, is really important to sort of flesh out that story. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we use it for selfish purposes because we like doing hammy research, but you sort of hope that yeah, it can lead to other lines of, of investigation and things that are probably more more serious, more important. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Well, well, obviously with all your successes <clears throat> and talking about other, other lines of research, as the director of the SPRINT, the uh, Sports Performance Recovery Injury and New Technologies Research Center, just 
that sounds pretty darn cool. That's, that's uh, you know, usually when you have a really cool acronym, you know, you're doing important work. I, I you know what I have to, um, I have to take no credit for the name. Um, the, the research center originally was sort of floated as a potential, I think towards the end of 2018. Um, and our, our head of school at the time, a guy by the name of Professor Justin Kemp, he's the executive dean of our, or acting executive dean of our faculty now. Um, he sort of said, you know, we were working on it and we sort of putting the pieces together about who we had on staff and all those sort of things. And he was, and we were throwing around an acronym and I'm terrible at, at acronyms. Um, I, you know, I think like Nordboard was my sort of shining moment. I remember thinking like, <laughs> Oh, is that your name? Oh, nice. I, nice. So I, um, I, 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 but I'd never been good at anything else beyond that. <laughs> um, so Justin sort of said, you know, I was preparing bits and pieces of like an informal sort of application to go somewhere at the university. And he was like, what about sprint? And I, I was like, nah, no good. And I just, yeah, man, I don't know. I had a very, very vanilla, terrible name. Anyway, and then the, a few things happened and sort of, you know, we came back again to the end of 2019 when things were starting to sort of flare up again. And uh, I was like working with Justin on a few things. I was like, oh, what do you think of a couple of these? And I think I had one of them, one of them was um, recovery, injury and performance center. And I called it the RIP, the RIP center. And he was like, oh, what, what about sprint? And I was like, I'll ask everyone and see what they think. Think it up. Rip, rip sounds pretty cool. Uh, and then everyone <laughs> unanimously voted for Sprint. Um, so I, I, it, it, it's a mouthful, uh, the full name, but the acronym is fantastic. And you're right. Yeah. Once you get a good acronym, you know, um, yeah, you, you're set. Um, no, it's, it's, it's really exciting. Um, so it's probably a, a, a role or position that probably comes a little bit to me a little bit earlier in my career than I might have thought or might have, might have thought I was ready for. Um, but in at ACU in particular, we've had a really strong emphasis on um, exercise and sports science, which is a, yeah, a discipline yeah. that I sit in. Yeah, you guys um, are on the but, top but, ranks, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, in, in particular, high-performance sports, we have a suite of degrees. Um, we have a Master's of High-Performance Sport um, degree, which is a you know, fully online degree. We have a lot of people from the UK and the US uh, enrolled in the degree, and a lot of people who are working in elite and professional sports who are doing that role while also studying the degree. Uh, but it, it, it's one thing to have a, a master's of high performance sport. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another thing then entirely to have the staff to support that degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, Justin in his time as head of school had a, a you know, fantastic strategy of identifying really top end talent who had applied experience as well as research experience and, and you know, PhDs and the like. Um, so you know, that meant the recruitment of people like um, Stuart Cormack, uh, who's deputy director of Sprint, um, but, you know, spent 20 to 25 years working in elite and professional sport at the Australian Institute of Sport through the um, late 90s and for the Sydney Olympics. Uh, he then worked at a high performance manager and, and sports science roles in Australian football teams for another you know, 10, 15 years after that and did his PhD. And one of the first who did his PhD in an applied environment, looking at, you know, counter movement jump as a tool to monitor neuromuscular fatigue. And hmm. yeah, anyone sees, you know, people doing counter movement jumps pretty right. routinely. Um, I think the, the lineage of that work probably stems from Stu's original work that he did with the West Coast Eagles as part of his PhD. Now, so the people like Stu uh, and then people like Shona Halson, uh, and again, Shona's one of the deputy directors at Sprint as well, and, and Shona worked at, again at the Australian Institute of Sport for um, you know, 15 to 20 years, uh, is you know, head of recovery and the head recovery physiologist for, I think, three Olympic game cycles. Uh, and again, but Shona then you know, established herself 
from an academic perspective whilst working practically as well. Um, and we have a host of, of others who have worked in the applied world, but then also um, have the research track record as well. So with all of that and the, the weight behind the, the MHPS degree, we all of a sudden had this collection of people who were doing really fantastic research and the university was looking for an opportunity to solidify some of the work that was being done in, in the schools and in our faculties that had a really strong focus on developing research institutes over a period of sort of five or six years. Uh, and they sort of had then identified that there were pockets in the university where people were doing fantastic work combined with teaching and service and other elements. They wanted to bring it together. And so that was really the, the genesis of, of Sprint. Um, so we have Stu who heads up the, the performance um, arm of the centre, Shona who focuses on the recovery side of things, but really quite heavily on the sleep um, mm -hmm. side of things and sleep in elite athletes and elite performance. And then I, I head up our, our injury research program as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's an exciting venture. And um, you know, some of these, sometimes when you get things sort of not forced on you, but when you have things sort of collaboratively forced together, yeah. they don't yeah. necessarily work all that well. We've been really fortunate that pretty much all the people who are involved in the research center um, have been around each other for a period of three, four, five, six, seven years. So you always knew what everyone was doing. You were like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, can you give us a hand with this or, or whatever? Uh, and even though we're sort of scattered across Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, the real sort of collegial environment there and, um, you know, trying to not only bring together all those different lines of research that we have as well, but we're pretty big on being able to, you know, um, provide our expertise, um, you know, to those back to those practical environments where people like Shu and, and Shona really cut their teeth many years ago, um, but sort of being able to close that loop between, you know, the research and then the practice and, um, and sort of harmonizing those worlds a little better as well. So yeah, it's an exciting endeavor and uh, university has been really supportive to date. You know, we got launched in April of 2020, which is smack bang in the middle of Australian lockdown um, <laughs> for COVID. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, we, we hope to um, sort of repay the faith in the university with some really high quality research, but then you know, being able to translate some stuff into practice as well. Uh, that's really cool. It's a, it's a very unique center, obviously, and to have someone focused on those topic areas. Uh, I'm not familiar with any others like that, at the, you know, in the, at, at a major institution where they're putting a lot of back behind it. So very Probably cool, tells very you cool it's a stupid idea then, Brian. I mean, no, you've got it, to means think all, it means all eyes are watching, man. All eyes are, no, no pressure, no pressure. No, I don't know. But I think, I mean, sport, like you think about sport and, and research, it's not a, 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 like an easily fundable area, right? Like right. that's one of the, the right. challenges that we'll have. Um, but I think we've also got ACU's yeah, we young university, right? So, you know, probably 30 years old now. And before that, its predecessors were a lot of um, teaching colleges, you know, mm -hmm. Catholic teaching colleges. Um, so young university. And I think that gives you a bit of a license to try and look at what are, you know, these common long held problems people have in, in science and in research about how do you fund the work that you really want to do? Right. Um, you know, how do you get support? Yeah. You know, all those sort of things. I think we get a bit of a mandate and a bit of a license to be a little bit more creative. And you know, we've got a, you know, a new vice chancellor and president. We've got a new provost. Uh, we've got a few new people in leadership roles. And you know, I think there's the real sort of vigor around the place to say, we, are, we know what the problems are. Let's try and look at some solutions. And you know, funding for sports research is one of those. Let's try and work out how we can be a little bit more innovative in terms of how we might be able to generate revenue to, to fund that research. So um, we'll see how we go. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
Well, we could keep going for another hour or two, but uh, I don't want to do that because I know you've got a lot of work to do since it's in the morning, your time. <clears throat> so thank you for taking the time and joining us today and, and sharing your stories, uh, not holding a grudge against me. And uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I'm assuming that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it that that's the case. <laughs> the fact that you agreed to be on this podcast indicates that you don't hold a grudge. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Okay, good deal. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Stoker, who's not with us, we can't like to thank Dr. David Opar for joining us today and giving us his time and his sharing his knowledge and expertise. Uh, as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and check out updates for the 2021 Mountainland Running Summit at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, you can find more information on all the running medicine resources offered by Mountainland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.